0: disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: People are very nervous, and this 10-year anniversary, I think, makes them more nervous because they're asking, how long can it last? And they remember that pain 10 years ago. And I think in the moment, you just do not know what to expect. It's like you're seeing your financial life flash before your eyes.
0: Investigative reporter, author, former Manhattan donut waitress, and now, wait for it. Editor of the New York Times Business Section, we have Ellen Joan Pollock for the hour. So do stay with us. This episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, helping busy professionals who have more than a 401k plan to worry about. Evo Advisors, offering clients financial advice. Fiduciaries for families at evoadvisors.com. By the Virginia Foundation for Public Media and the Community Idea Stations, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire, visit ideastations.org. And by Performance Food Service, a proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide, online at pfgc.com. Joining me right here at NPR New York opposite Brian Park, my old, my not old, but my former oh, boss okay. from Business Week, Ellen Joan Pollack. She is now the esteemed editor of the business section at The New York Times. How are you?
1: I am good.
0: Thank you for schlepping out here. I appreciate it. I've been nagging you forever to come on this show.
1: And I felt so guilty, I actually showed up.
0: No, I felt so guilty for not being a, you know, an A student back when you were my boss at Bloomberg Business Week. But hopefully I found my calling in life and can redeem myself in front of you right now.
1: <laughs> you were close to being an A student. Oh, Very shucks. Close. Ellen,
0: talk to me. I mean, um, first things first. So you're well-traveled. You were deputy page one editor at the Wall Street Journal in a past life. We'll get into the donut waitress thing afterwards. But- after the Wall Street Journal, you came to Business Week, I think right at the step of the financial crisis. I remember the first story we worked on together was about the subprime blame game, maybe circa 2007. And then we wrote that out. It uh, became Bloomberg Business Week. You went from Bloomberg Business Week. You were the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You've come to the Times, a really rejuvenated New York Times that has gotten its groove back. The stock is at a multi-year high. They're hiring left and right. They're expanding into podcasting and And suddenly, uh, it's a place with a lot of verve. And
1: and you you feel
0: free to cast a wide net and pitch many stories.
1: I don't think the stock is up because I was hired, (laughs) but I'm not sure. But I've been at The Times now for just under two years. And it's obviously an incredibly exciting time to be in news. And I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be covering business news.
0: It, it is a true story. And I told you once that I was watching Mad Money with CNB on uh, Jim Cramer, who I profiled once for Businessweek, and somebody called it and asked him about McGraw-Hill. He's like, you got to buy this stock. They just hired Ellen Joan Pollock. It's a great move. I was like, oh, my gosh, does that really correlate? I swear that footage is out there. You can find it.
1: I should look for it. Uh, <laughs> Jim and I worked together when we were in our early 20s, which, by the way, was a very long time ago. People. But he's kind of the same as he was then.
0: Yeah, and I—that's—I remember Steve Adler got that recommendation for him to come and do the cover story at Business Week. It was years ago, and who knew that he had this this storied past at the Harvard Crimson and his father cutting off his credit card. But I digress, as I normally do. <laughs> what's topical? What's newsy now? I mean, we're all over the place. If if you know the Trump news suck, um, everything seems to tend toward uh, back toward Donald Trump, the former you know New York limousine. Uh, gaudy executive. It's it's kind of must be super surreal for you to see him as this president, as this person who's celebrated in red state America. Uh, but then Tesla comes at you. You guys are talking about Gwyneth Paltrow, the trade deficit. Start me off. Which, what, what should be top of mind for us this week?
1: There's a lot that should be top of mind, even besides the president. Um, just today, we're writing about Tesla and the problems at Tesla. Um, They're closing their dealerships and are going to, or most of their dealerships, and they're going to be selling their cars online. Um, We have a story that is literally breaking as we speak about Facebook. Um, Mark Zuckerberg just told us that he is going to refocus Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and have them more focused on, on, on individual and private sharing rather than public sharing. And that's like, a whole new direction possibly for social media. And um, there was deficit uh, trade deficit news today too. So it's like constantly busy and it's really exciting because every time you turn around, it's something completely different.
0: Well, I got to know if we start with Facebook, how many second and third and fourth and fifth chances does this company get? Like, oops, we did it again. You know, oh my goo, you did it again. Like, we beg for your forgiveness. The news cycle, people forget about it. The stock falls and then they come back and yet another record quarter i posted the the question to twitter and i think shira oviday who follows the company very closely answered it. i said what out there twitterdom what would be your willingness to pay for an ad free uh privacy sensitive facebook material could you add it to this subscription economy where they could get paid something like 10 12 bucks a month and not be creepy around you if you know what i mean And she said that it is actually pretty expensive for Facebook because it's so lucrative. It's something like $9 a month per user of advertising revenue.
1: It's – you know, they are an advertising company. I had to to laugh when Zuckerberg was testifying before Congress. Um, I forget who it was, but one of the Congress people said, how do you make money? And he said, advertising – and people don't think of it as an advertising company, but to some degree, that's what it is. And I have to say, you know, we are all focused on 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 all of Facebook's problems: the the, the issue of 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 privacy, the is, issues of disinformation, which were so important during during the the last presidential campaign and in, in in electoral politics abroad. But you know, for a lot of users, it's their primary way of communicating with their friends. And don't forget that Facebook is now an international company and if you talk to their many many users abroad some of them probably care about this stuff and probably some of them don't and they have I don't remember the number exactly but it's it's you know between two and three billion users it's a lot of users
0: it's a parallel internet it's a totally walled off. Opt-in version of the internet.
1: It is, and you know, there's some, there's, uh, you know, some thought that their users are leveling off in the in the U.S. And there's a lot of talk about how young people are not as interested in 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 Facebook anymore, but young people are still on Instagram and WhatsApp, which most people don't even think of as a Facebook company, is an important part of Facebook's um, big operation. I
0: have to know, and color me, you know, old timey. I guess I'm Gen X, and everybody talks about millennials and whatever is a post. Your your daughter doesn't qualify as a millennial.
1: Right no, now. she doesn't. Is She's, she big
0: into social media?
1: She is very big into social media. Why? I have never clicked on an
0: online ad, a Facebook ad. I spend most of my time on Facebook trying to opt out of these ads and rejigger my privacy settings. Why hasn't there been more of a reckoning with advertisers like? okay, I understand you have three billion users or whatever it is, but this just doesn't have much efficacy. Like the rest of the Reckoning. The New York Times had it. Other publications had it. Time, Inc. had it.
1: Because there are so many people on on those applications. And there are so many people looking at the ads, and they know maybe you don't click on them, but other people do. And I just remember back in the days that we worked at Businessweek, which is a, a long time ago, what advertisers really wanted to know was, are readers interacting with my ads? And we could never answer that question because we couldn't keep track of when readers, like, looked at their ad or turned the page. So... It's it it helps advertisers to know that people are actually interacting with their ad, and they collect data from people interacting with their ads. And they, you know, as you all know, ads follow you around, and so it's a whole different. That's game. so
0: creepy. I interact with ads by trying to block them and thwart them. And let's talk about the advertising duopoly now, which is Facebook and Google. I honestly spend most of my time. If you if you open up a YouTube. Video, like I'm immediately looking for the skip ad button. And I don't know if I'm reflective of their demo. I mean, maybe it's a 25 to 54 year old thing. But
1: advertising is annoying But when you talk about millions and millions and millions of people, not everybody is going to feel the way you do. And I have to say, sometimes these ads that follow me, first of all, on Instagram, I love Instagram. I'm on Instagram all the time. Right. And when I look at the ads that follow me, they are all ads for clothing that is black. I only wear black clothing. I'm a New Yorker. That's just what I wear. All the ads are for black clothes. And you know what? Sometimes I actually click on them. I'm like, oh, there's another black skirt. I need many more black skirts. And I do click on them. And there are a tremendous number of people who do not care. They may look at it and say, oh, it's a little creepy that this sports bra is following me around from site to site. But they don't care that much. And they're not blocking the ads. So
0: wait, why is that? Because you spend time surfing, looking for clothing on, let's say, the Donna Karen website or something? Or... I don't understand. Or maybe it's it's profiling the photos that you post it's to Facebook and Instagram. It's
1: collecting data from what you know, from that where I'm clicking. doesn't creep you out? You know, it creeps me out a little bit, but I'm kind of used to it. And I do think that if you're used to it and if you came up at a time where, you know, this is all you know, you're not that creeped out. I mean, my kid is 21 years old. She's never said to me, Mom, I'm creeped out that the ads are following me. Some people care and some people don't. And there are so many people on these platforms that enough people are letting it happen. Was that
0: an experiment in the journal, the Wall Street Journal a week ago that a woman tried to uh, opt out of all of these privacy things and and and, and kind of re-up, um, tighten the screws of what Facebook can and can't see. And then on a separate app, she went and Kind of tricked it into thinking she was pregnant, and then it came to her with a maternity ad within 11 hours.
1: Right, it's it's so hard to know you how this stuff works. You can't kill the
0: beast. And so when I see you guys are reporting that he's shift focus to private sharing, how does he have any trust left after everything that's happened?
1: Well, so I guess, and again, I, the story was developing when I left the office and ran o, out. You know, ran over here with my um, lukewarm cup of coffee, but there you know the question is why are they going to try to change their focus and and again, you're still there's still going to be public sharing on 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 Facebook. I'm, I'm still going to be able to 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 see, um, you know, the posts of, of people at Carnegie Hall where I was last night. But the, but they're just directionally going to change to this private sharing. Now, why are they doing that? Maybe it's because of all the disinformation, and they want to make it more of a closed garden because they've been under attack so much for all the disinformation that have been on these platforms and it may be and again i'm i'm sort of just yakking here because more and more that's how people are are communicating they're communicating in group texts i mean my my kid she and her friend group at in college are all on a group text i mean i'm on whatsapp with my husband and my daughter This, to some degree, is the way people are communicating now. It's more like your living room. So it may be a combination of things. It may be part of it to sort of move past all the scandal about disinformation and part of it um, because that's what people want right now.
0: If you and I walked from, let's say, uh, Miami to Seattle and polled every 10 person uh, who owns WhatsApp, how many would know that it's a Facebook property?
1: I bet very few. Very few. And you know, there's been a lot of sort of churn of of, of personnel, um, maybe a lot isn't the right word of at, at Facebook, where the some of the, the early employees or founders of, of WhatsApp left. And part of it was because Mark Zuckerberg, and we did a story about this, Mark Zuckerberg wanted to bring, he'd bought WhatsApp, he bought Instagram, and he wanted to, you know, he wanted to bring these products closer together so you could communicate between WhatsApp and Messenger. And again, bear in mind I don't know exactly how. it's going to work. But he wanted to make it more of one company and figure out also how to monetize these properties. I mean, Facebook, obviously, you know, they're making a lot of money on Facebook for ads, but that isn't the case at WhatsApp. They haven't figured that out yet.
0: Let's move on to, before we get into kind of free skate afterwards, where you can pick anything you want, Tesla. Yes. Uh, Tesla, here's a guy who, I just remember when I was covering him under you and i think one of their breakthrough moments was consumer reports came out and said the model s was not just like it got its highest rating ever but he insisted that they put out a press release and say please also inform your readers that uh, it tested so well in our crash test things that it broke your testing machine i mean this guy's ego is substantial and he's you know he's got a manic side he's you know been with your reporters and he's revealed his other side what the heck is going on there? It's a great product, but suddenly you're telling us that uh, we don't need showrooms, we don't need a physical presence. You know, you have whiplashing news volatility out of this guy, and I think it underscores for me what they call the key man risk, where so much of it is tied into one person's efforts.
1: Well, it's certainly different from the old kind of CEOs we used to cover back when I was at the Wall Street Journal um, where I left in 2007. I mean, he's you know, a bit of a wild man. And that's in part why his investors um, love him. This is a man with like huge imagination, right? He came up with this idea for this luxury car, and he somehow made it work. But along with that kind of personality comes someone who takes risks, who's willing to kind of um, go with the flow and switch course suddenly. And, you know, what's happened now is that They've been opening they've been opening up dealerships. You know, they opened up dealerships just a few months ago and they like made a big thing about how they'd opened up new dealerships and now they're gonna close most of them. I mean, including some that they just opened up. And it's partly because they need to they need, you know, they need to cut costs. They just had a huge bond payment, which they made last Friday. But it's an experiment and you're watching it unfold before your eyes which you don't usually see with a public company so he'll 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 come up with these production estimates and he has this he has this factory that's like no other factory car factory in the world and then he doesn't make the estimates but he you know he 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 keeps trying and he keeps trying different things, and it's fascinating to watch. If you're an investor, I think I'd be holding on to my, the arms of my yeah, chair. I mean it's,
0: it's certainly a volatile stock. And look at the volatility of headlines, just to quote your reporter, Neil Boudet. Um, Just I'm going to go back and forth. In the final three months of 2018, Tesla opened 27 sales and service locations to keep up with rising demand for the Model 3. Uh, Let's go up. Recently, the financial stress on the company has become more evident. It laid off 7% of its workforce in January, the second job cut in the last eight months. And the company had to use up to a quarter of its available cash to make a $920 million payment to bondholders. Uh, Next week, Mr. Musk intends to unveil Tesla's newest offering, the Model Y, a small sport utility vehicle. And then one more thing to kind of throw it in the mix to illustrate how whiplashing this is for everybody. You quoted a management guru at the University of Michigan School of Business. He said, I think this company is in scary territory. The flip-flop on retail strategy, he added, makes it seem like Elon Musk is winging it and the board is letting him wing it.
1: Well, there probably is some truth to the winging it part. Don't forget, this is just a few months ago where he went on Twitter and said that he wanted to take the company private, which is a material statement. And the SEC was like, they'd never seen anything like that before. You know, using social media to make material statements that ordinarily you would have to, you know, do a filing for. It's like he and
0: Roger Stone like messing with the authorities.
1: It's it's like a whole new relationship between a CEO and his investors and the CEO and his public. I mean, he, he got in trouble with the SEC for doing that and, you know, still – that's part of his appeal, in a way, that he is a different kind of entrepreneur. He is a man with incredible imagination. You know, we did a sto- we did a, a really fascinating um, interview with him um, some months ago, where he was you know really emotional on the phone
0: but he said i wasn't crying right
1: right we we said in our story that he, that he was that that he was crying and then he he was very offended by that and went on twitter and said that he wasn't but let's stay out of that for a moment and just say he was very emotional and and was talking about the toll that running this company is taking on his, on his life and um was very open with it and, you know, again, it's it's a whole different way of running a company. I mean, the guy is like, you know, is is talking about smoking pot. Imagine, you know, imagine Jack Welsh talking about that at, at, at GE. Oh, we'll get it, to GE, it's too. It's a whole, it's, you know. But that's, it,
0: almost, that's almost forgotten, that scene with Joe Rogan where he went on the podcast. And he's not even a pot smoker. It doesn't do anything for him. And then that must have given, you know, the corporate governance people convulsions. Just one other quote here. It's that this is the same person. Elon Musk, who has promised a revolution in pretty much every business he has entered, his SpaceX rockets are meant to take passengers to other planets someday. While his Boring Company aims to solve traffic problems with underground tunnels, I think there was also a flamethrower that kept, came out a couple years ago. I don't know if that was an April Fool's prank. I don't know.
1: I don't know if. I mean, he was talking about flamethrowing. I I don't know if that. But was Ellen, a But Ellen, I thing wonder
0: if this is the problem. And they actually said it with Marissa Meyer also at Yahoo. If a person is wealthy enough at some point maybe they're just completely unmoored. What is his net worth? 8 to 10 billion dollars. He doesn't like care. At this point it's it's empire building. It's it's maybe delusions of grandeur. It's about his role in history and and being an astronaut. And that if you bring it down to the very mundane SEC Reg FD world is really not consistent.
1: I think um it's not just about being famous with him. I think he really has a really strong vision for what he wants to Accomplished. I mean, I I rode in a Tesla for the first time um, about a year ago, and I have to. And I don't care about cars. I have um, my car is gray and ten years old. It doesn't matter to me as long as it goes. And I'm really excited that my car has power windows. That was the big excitement for me. So Bluetooth. I'm Bluetooth them, is the next big uh, thing. You know, way. well, I'm not there yet. But right. so I am not a car person. But I get into this Tesla. And it does that acceleration thing where it like makes you feel like oh you're my in a heart spacecraft. flutters,
0: my and, heart flutters. And
1: it has the doors that fly sure. open. And I have to ask you, like, why? You do not need these things, right? You do not need a well, car. Well, his door
0: handles are freezing in other places. You read about this. People have yes, to hold d- up big lighters. Like, if you're a little too cute for certain things, and I, you know, that that speaks to the person's need for attention.
1: But I have to say, it was a lot of fun it really was. I was only in this car for about a half an hour. It was a lot of fun, but when I left the car and I um went and kind of sat down and thought about the experience, it wasn't just fun. It was it was really um an example of this man having incredible imagination. Like who would have come up with this? Oh, I'm going to make my car feel like a spaceship. I mean, they're not thinking that way in Detroit. So that's why for us, he's like a fascinating man to cover. And I think if you look on Twitter and you look at, at, at the way people respond to him on Twitter... His investors love him because it's like, what will he do next?
0: It's almost messianic.
1: It is. It's almost messianic.
0: Full disclosure I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Ellen Joan Pollock. She is the editor of the business section at the New York Times, my former boss at Bloomberg Business Week, uh, the venerable deputy page one editor at the Wall Street Journal. She has two books under her belt. I do. And uh, I, I have to keep teasing that uh, theater district donut waitress thing we're gonna get to that hell or high water talk to me about the trade deficit Um, and you know you do talk to anyone about this at a cocktail party you see old-timey Paul Volcker era people saying, oh you know we don't produce anything anymore the headline in the Times is in a blow to Trump America's trade deficit hit a record eight hundred and ninety one billion dollars tell me why should we care
1: well on some level we don't have to Um, but on a, another you know the president said he wanted to narrow the trade deficit and he thought that tariffs were going to do the job and so far tariffs have not done the job we bought we bought more from abroad than we did the previous year and I forget the numbers but it's a, it's a significant amount and we bought more from china than we had in previous years and so the trade deficit his plan um, for tariffs, has not accomplished the prime uh, goal of that program, and the 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 one complicating factor is that one of the reasons it didn't work is the tax cuts, which were another signature part of his program. And so people had, you know, they a had a lot tax of money cuts. to
0: spend, and they buy imported
1: goods, imported have...
0: wares. You buy a four K TV or something ostensibly manufactured abroad,
1: right? So people are buying more from abroad and and so it's it's kind of this push and pull of his of his policy and a, again you know the whole point of the tariffs was to to um, you know, Im- improve this trade imbalance and it and it and it hasn't worked. And you know, he's still in the thick of it. He's still negotiating with China. It's unclear what's going to happen there. He's still in negotiating to some degree with with um with Europe. And so you know, it's still in the middle of this experiment. Um, but it it hasn't gone so far the way he had planned for you know, sure.
0: And parallel to this, in the article you mentioned that the Treasury Department figures now show that the budget deficit's widening and is on track to top a trillion this fiscal year. Uh, revenue from personal and corporate income taxes was down by nine percent in January compared to the same month a year ago. It seems like we are in super bizarre territory. We are in full employment. The property market is back. The banks have been recapitalized. We're a decade removed from the bottom of the market, which we'll get to. Right. And you threw all the stimulus into the mix last year. And you're going to get bizarre side effects like this where the economy is booming and in the, in the late part of a recovery that we have this enormous trade and budget deficit.
1: Well, that's what economists were screaming about. The tax cut was essentially a stimulus. And what economists were saying is this is the wrong time for a stimulus. You don't need a stimulus now. But- um he went ahead and did it and that's why you're seeing these you know these huge deficits and you know for most people a tax cut you know feels good and there's more money to spend but again these forces are are kind of are kind of conflicting and you know, stimulus when the when when the economy is is growing and when 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 employment is is moving nicely and unemployment is down, you know, below four percent, is it's a funny time to 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 uh, try to goose the economy. Do you
0: remember where we were ten years ago today?
1: I do. It was this is almost the tenth anniversary of the bull market.
0: Ten years ago today, as Carl Quintanilla of CNBC reports, and this is on Wednesday, the S&P 500 hit an intraday cycle low of 666.79. And I just remember where we were because uh, our magazine was clearly in play. Everybody kept saying, core, go do core stories. Core, 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 right? Aggregation, all this stuff. And there were rumors that were flying in that AIG was going to have to go to the trough again. Um, City. We were actually – our sources in the finance department there at Businessweek were hearing from the New York Fed that there actually might be a possibility that they'll let Citi fail even though Lehman was such a catastrophe. Um, and that week, I had an assignment to go down on an Amtrak and profile Jack Bogle in D.C. And I caught him in Philly and went down there. And pretty much at the market's low, he told me that this was like the opposite of what he saw in 2000. And lo and behold, 10 years later, the market has rip-roared back. Uh, Nobody seems to remember that things can fall apart. Property has been restored. Uh, I mean, you talk about venture capital markets, the things that are getting bought and backed, Uh, you know, profligacy here in New York, uh, inflation you see in property values, in artwork. The S&P 500 has since traveled from 666 to 2771.
1: So really what this means is 10 years ago today, if you were not buying stock, or if you were not investing in mutual funds, you were making a mistake. If we had all spent the day just buying, we would have been we would all be rich right now.
0: Do you know what literally happened that day? I was in the finance department and people from the art department came by and they it was a line at around four o'clock. And you can ask Ilsa Walton. She's the you know, she's there in production and everything. This gets a little inside baseball, but they're all kind of looking to me and Gene Marshall, he was the stock columnist and saying, Farzad, uh, I'm thinking about just selling everything, and I was like, "Look, I'm a young guy. I was, I was a whippersnapper back then, Ellen. I mean, I was a lot younger. I know now it I'm. It was aged a lot. It was
1: ten years it ago. It was ten
0: years ago, right? I mean." But everybody's telling me like my mom lived through the depression, and I just think we're going to be in a bread line next year, and I need cash, and I want to put this stuff away. Mohammed Elarian, who we profiled right. from Pimco, said he even told his wife to take ten thousand dollars out of the bank and put it away. But you hear something, and we don't want to sound like elites and and people who are disconnected from real misery, you know, at the mom and pop level. But that's precisely when you're supposed to buy.
1: That is when you're supposed to buy, and I, you know. The market is so um, is is so uh, tricky and poetic in its way. I I remember the summer before, or a few months before, and the market was doing incredibly well. And I had just started at Business Week, and I said to myself, "I don't have time to think about my 401k. I'm gonna I'm gonna sell everything in my 401k and go into in, into cash." Wait, was
0: it before or after Rupert bought?
1: It was. Um, before the Did you deal get the closed. $60? I did. Ah. I think I, I did. But anyway, so I was really, really smart. I got out of the market in, in my 401k when it was high. But you know what? As they always say, <laughs> you have to be right twice. And you almost never are. You have to know when to take your money out, and you have to know when to put it back in. And everybody's impulse to get out of the market when it's low is the wrong impulse. And really... If you're a long-term investor, they always say this, but it really turns out to be true. If you just left your money in the market when it went down 10 years ago, you would have ridden it back up.
0: One of my most pungent financial crisis memories, and I believe it was December 08, Lehman failed in September, and you had all of these awful things happen, and unemployment's in a free fall, and nobody knows when we hit bottom, the Fed, how many trillions is it going to have to print. But uh, we had a doorman, uh, Abba, he's... uh, Tanzanian, and he's a day trader on the side, like he just would trade Apple and Google and all these other things on the side. And he turns to me and he would always stop me on the way home and and, and say, he called me Cousin, that was his nickname for me. He goes, Cousin, Bank of America, $4 a share. The US government is not gonna let Bank of America fail. Think about how bad that would look to the world. Just on the name alone, if I know nothing about the balance sheet, nothing about good bank, bad bank, it's Bank of America right? And you have to think about it in that respect. They were going to capitalize the financial system. It was an overwhelmingly odd stacked in your favor bet that, no, we're not going to let this fall into kind of a 1920s, 1930s situation and then pick up the pieces afterwards. If you didn't learn that from Lehman, then certainly you know six months after that when the market hit the low. But that's all very clear in 2020 hindsight. And we have not had many sell-offs. And Many bear markets in the past ten years.
1: We haven't. And I think that's part of what scares people is that and, and you could see it a little bit in, in in at the end of the year when the market was 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 you know going down in sort of a dramatic way and when volatility was high, that people were asking, they were almost like thinking ahead of themselves. They're like saying, This can't last. It can't last. It's not going to reach ten years. And people were pulling their money out. And 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 people just don't Completely trust it. We did. Um, we did a really interesting story um, a week or two ago about how individual re- um, investors have gotten out of the market, and that the market is being driven by by um, companies buying and selling, and um, in part because of stock buybacks, which is how a lot of companies use their savings when when um, when there were tax cuts, but. People are very nervous, and this 10-year anniversary, I think, makes them more nervous because they're asking, how long can it last? And they remember that pain 10 years ago. And I think, I mean, this is a point you just made, but in the moment, you just do not know what to expect. It's like you're seeing your financial life flash before your eyes. And
0: if somebody moreover had told you at that moment that Amazon is going to be one of the largest companies on the planet and Netflix was going to return like 25-fold, would you have believed them?
1: I would not have believed it at the time.
0: Let's take the very obverse of it, General Electric.
1: GE. How fascinating is what's happened with GE? I mean, when we were back at Business Week, um, GE was like this model company, and we always knew that our readers wanted to read about GE. Jack and and Susie. It was, I mean, Jack Welsh was considered to be this incredible visionary. It was a safe stock. It was like a widow's and orphan's stock. And the reason why people always wanted to read about ge and you always knew that if you put ge on the cover you know people it was going to be sn- you know snapped off of newsstands is that people v- viewed jack welsh As a guy who knew exactly what he was doing, and they wanted to model their companies after what he did, he was like a management guru in a way. People thought, GE is so successful. I want to know what he's doing. I can learn from him. And look at what's happened. GE is, is, you know, they've gone through multiple CEOs. They are selling some of their, you know, they're selling some of their units and they're trying to figure out how to, how, you know, how to transform themselves. It's a whole different, um, it's like a whole different ball game. People don't care about GE. They're not looking to GE for ideas on how to run their company.
0: Just to give you an idea, the stock is at $9, which is where it was back in 1995, Um, this company has completely fallen apart. It was during the financial crisis, the exposure to GE Capital, which in hindsight, they were cookie-jarring things to kind of smooth out earnings. You've seen that with Dell and other companies before. And um, I just remember doing a piece on... um, You know, Jeff Immelt, the CEO who took over for Jack Welch around September 11th of 2001. And
1: he did well for a while. But he did well
0: for himself. And there isn't any outrage about this if you're a GE shareholder or a widow or orphan. This is a person who – it was impossible to criticize. One, he spent a lot on advertising, a lot on banking fees. This is one of the most acquisitive companies was acquiring and divesting left and right. So nobody on the sell side was going to stand up there and say the emperor has no clothes. They're massaging earnings. And uh, the company waited way too long to bring in the next guy. The next guy lasts, like, you know, eight or nine months. And then this other guy here is just begging for more time and not seeming to get it, right? And then you you can imagine a world where you don't hear about G e anymore, just like Westinghouse and rCA unthinkable things a couple of decades ago,
1: and that's what's so amazing about really the last you know 15 years in business coverage is that things have changed so incredibly fast and the idea that GE would not be a company that people were thinking about all the time is would have been unthinkable 10, ten years ago and the idea that that Amazon um, would be would be so significant would have been unthinkable you know we did um right around the time you and i worked together um cloud computing became a thing we kept doing all these stories about cloud computing. i still don't
0: know what that is but go ahead
1: you don't need to know what it is. I don't is. know what
0: Bitcoin. People people at cocktail parties must say, "Ellen, tell me about crypto." I'm like, but, I'll, I'll get back to
1: you. But cloud computing is every. We don't call it cloud computing. It's it's. We're just storing our stuff. You know, we're we're we're. You know, we're we're putting our stuff on Google Docs. Where where where. You know, companies are using Amazon for cloud storage. We you don't think of it as a thing. It's just. The way companies do business, they store their stuff at AWS, the Amazon cloud um, Cloud unit, or they store their stuff at Microsoft or, or Google. You don't think about when you put your stuff in Dropbox, you're not thinking, oh, I'm in the cloud. But you are. And that would have been, you know, it was so new. And now it's just part of your life.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Ellen Pollack, business editor at The New York Times. Ellen, uh, a lot of people have been talking lately about AT and T, old Ma Bell, resurrected Ma Bell, truly getting its hooks into this prize acquisition of Warner Media, the old Time Warner, which its crown asset I think was HBO. And I don't know if we've seen this story before. It certainly smacks a lot of, uh, at least. AOL Time Warner at the turn of the century. And before that, people forget a whole different company called AT&T, which was a landline company and had AT&T Wireless, binged on cable acquisitions, bought TCI and a bunch of other things. Uh, if you if you go back and look at the transcript of these deals in 98 and 99, like we foresee a future where there's convergence and the phone and you're streaming and you're, you're not getting just the triple play but the quadruple play and Leo Hindry was involved and all these people. And it was a debt catastrophe. It was such a debt bomb that AT&T had to sell these assets for a fraction to Comcast. AT&T, the old Ma Bell, we're all connected. You know, no, not we're all connected. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. I the do. original, the stub thing disappeared. It, it was did. part of Comcast and it divested it. And now you have this old AT&T, which was Southwestern. Was. Bell decides to come in last year, which took over AT&T wireless and singular and bell South and all these other things. And now content is suddenly hot again and we're going to buy all this stuff. And we foresee a future where, y- you know, your uh, unlimited plan includes amazing 5g and game of Thrones and Turner sports. This is a hugely risky bet. In addition to paying something like $85 billion at a rich multiple for, for HBO, the company has an enormous debt load. It has AT&T, an enormous debt load. And dividend payers want their dividends. And it's kind of a no-win thing. Can an old staid phone company dance with these Hollywood people?
1: Well what I just in terms of, of, of being an editor and, and looking at these stories, what's what's exciting as a as a as a as a story is that what ATT is doing is creating a, a company a, a kind of company that hasn't existed or hasn't existed um It's always existed it in theory,
0: not in practice. Right. Nowhere.
1: But you know, it may be that when they've tried this before they were ahead of their time and that this is the moment. I mean AT&T wants to distinguish itself from Verizon. They want to have content to put through their pipes, right? And now they see Netflix, and soon Apple, and certainly Amazon. And streaming is where it's at, right? You, if you are watching traditional TV at home, you are becoming uh, a part of an incredibly shrinking group, right? I mean, cord cutting is 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 it's it's almost you know a fact of everyone's lives to some degree it's it's you know Netflix and Amazon took all these companies by surprise and suddenly the at and of the world feel like they need content to put through to, to put through their their wires or their fake wires whatever it is and so the question is buying um, what is now going to be called Warner Media is that is that going to give them enough content and so they have HBO the head of HBO, Richard Plepler who really you know was one of the people who built this mean, this is HBO. a guy who'll
0: take Brad Pitt's calls. Brad Pitt doesn't call the Telco company in no, Texas.
1: He calls He called Richard Plepler. Um and he you know what what Richard Plepler and his predecessors created was a highly curated uh, collection of programming, you know, Westworld, Game of Thrones, et cetera. I mean, Sopranos
0: it, library the, to say nothing of that.
1: I mean, but it really was. It's it it had a boutique flavor to it. You kind of knew when you went to HBO the kind of thing you were gonna get. And one thing that I think ATT is realizing is that stuff is great, but they need more of it. And I think, you know what 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 um what Stanky, the, the the AT&T guy, calls himself a bellhead, and is now, you know, on top of, of 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 Warner Media, was telling employees during some very highly publicized sort of town halls, is, you're doing great, but you're going to need to do more. We're going to need more stuff, and so the question is whether can the HBO brand kind of retain its identity? And will it still have that kind of, um, will people know what HBO is? Will they know kind of what they're getting with HBO once you increase the programming, you know, multif- multifold? And, and, and you know, you know Plepler and um, uh, Richard Plepler, you know, had... Great control over over his over his world, and and he defined the world, and that was part of the appeal of HBO. So the risk is, will AT&T be able to keep that kind of branding as they create more stuff?
0: And, you know, it's clearly not just HBO they right. have. I think they still own Cinemax. I'm not even sure. But CNN, which has come off like a gangbusters profitable year. Right. Um, I don't understand. Like and and, and and an adjacent point to that is word that came out. I believe it was in Jane Mayer's New Yorker piece that Trump wanted his Justice Department to block that deal specifically because he wanted – he doesn't like CNN. He doesn't want to give any comfort of it being in a bigger parent company. Do you ever wonder where CNN might end up? Well
1: – you know at one point during the you know as the deal was being contemplated there were questions about whether CNN was going to be sold it doesn't it doesn't look like that at the at the moment but you know the president hated CNN so much and made it so you know made that so public and of course the government really fought this this um this merger and Ultimately, as of just a week ago or so, you know, law, you know, lost its appeal, and they're not going to they're not going to pursue it to the Supreme Court. But you could argue that if AT and T needs a lot of stuff to put through its pipes, it's going to want news too. And in fact, Jeff Zucker, who uh, runs CNN, um, is going to have a bigger role now. He's going to be in charge, I guess, of sports. But it's interesting that CNN is part of Turner, and Turner is being is is really going to be mushed into mushed is a highly technical word, I know, into into Warner media. And that's because the a t and t guys want want these various media entities to be working closely together. And again, it's all about creating content to put you know the content the and
0: distribution thing never truly worked. I remember with AOL Time Warner, You know, you look like an alien talking to these people. If You showed up to a Time Warner Roadrunner office and said, could I get AOL broadband? And the AOL people wanted nothing to do with CNN and HBO. All that was under one roof once upon a time. And it it fell apart rather quickly. So it'll be curious to see if these guys – and talk about, you know, Texas and New York and Burbank and Hollywood making that work out.
1: Right, I mean that's what's fascinating. It's a huge gamble, and it's a really, it's going to be a really interesting um, melding of cultures. I mean, the culture of AT and T, you know, which is basically, you know, it's a telecom. It's a util- It's almost like a utility. What was the most
0: successful baby bell? These guys in Verizon. If you think about. You go back to your old school stuff and, and Ma Bell getting broken up to the Baby Bells in 1984. Like right? The successful ones are Bell Atlantic, which right. is now Verizon, and Southwestern Pac Bell SBC, which is right. AT&T, right? And so Ma Bell has reconstituted again, but you're not really long for the world if you're just offering people commodity phone plans, right? right? And it's a CapEx thing. And
1: But I just want to point out – the guys who are thinking about commodity phone plans are not the guys who are likely to, to 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 somehow conjure up the show Westworld. I mean, these are two different kinds of ways of thinking. But they
0: were smart enough to be fearful for their position to kind of innovate or die. That we know we had to buy this thing. Right. What's shocking to me is how quickly they were willing to mess with the culture.
1: Right, and that's I mean the the gamble. It's a financial gamble, and it's a gamble about whether they can preserve these brands. And, you know, even though there is this sort of melding of cultures that may or may not work.
0: Gosh, I could keep you for hours, but you talk about clashing cultures and media, old school geeks and new school. What about Jeff Bezos? That was that blockbuster piece you guys wrote on his transmogrification into this Hollywood, you know, paparazzi celeb. This was the geeky guy who started Amazon. You could totally see the spray paint on the wall and the the, the door that he turned over and he drove cross country with his wife. Now he's since got bulked up. He goes to Sun Valley, Idaho, wealthiest man in history, adjusted or not for inflation. And he's a film mogul.
1: And he's a film mogul. It's really, it's, it's, you know, I remember the first time I saw a picture of a buff Jeff Bezos and I thought, what is, like
0: Amazon Prime.
1: It was, it's like, what's going on here?
0: Bezos Prime.
1: And- I'm assuming that Jeff Bezos is adjusting to the to to the to the idea of being a very public person because when I go to the gym and suddenly I have like a little bicep it's not like it's making the papers it must be a really um it must be quite a change for him um but suddenly he's in all kinds of businesses right i mean Amazon prime and 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 this you know this the the streaming business is a, is a, a huge business and they're everywhere. I mean, they're in the cloud. They, they, People are are competitors or would-be competitors or are, are worried about where will he be next.
0: And if I just took one sliver of this entire story over the past 10 years and told you 10 years ago, we go back in time, Ellen, boss, uh, Amazon is going to own Whole Foods. That itself would have been risible. Like, what? Like, I was in the Whole Foods today at Bryant Park. It is so complex. They've invested in all this different, you know, point-of-sale stuff and, and uh, you know, and it's never going to make a difference to Amazon's financials. It's never going to really move the needle. And they paid something like fourteen billion
1: cash for it. It's a it is a small part of their business, but it's interesting. Now, if you buy something on 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 sale, you get like a little bit more off if you're an Amazon Prime member. I mean, they are they are um, somehow figuring out that they'll be able to use the you know the little bit of data they get you know, at Whole Foods to inform how they sell to you on Amazon.
0: And it's asymmetric warfare because I don't think Wall Street judges him on same store sales or specific stuff. If you look at the history of this company since 94, 95, and the collective uh, revenue numbers, which are enormous, and the tiny, tiny, tiny husk of a profit that they've made, I I would think that he's the envy of all of technology and all of retail because nobody's measuring him as a retailer.
1: And that's I mean the fact that he kept investors at bay for so long and he was he he was we're not ready to make money. We're not ready to make money. And he kept Wall Street in check. And they, were, you know, he didn't allow them to force him to think quarter to quarter. He was always thinking long term. Is really, it shows a lot of guts because, again, he had, you know. He, Wait, he, he went had, out
0: and with Trump change bought the Washington Post. It's. Which is kind of like a dream owner right now, right? If a person doesn't care about his core profitability at the mothership. Why is he gonna care about a little $250 million bobble?
1: Well, it's a it's it is a bobble. I mean, it's 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 for him, that's just I guess fun, social responsibility. I don't I don't know. You,
0: you know, you guys also wrote about the ongoing bloodletting in, in retail and commercial real estate here and the haves and the have nots. It's it's really brutal out there. I, to say nothing. I mean, you saw the Jim Burie news. The ongoing stuff. We've lost Toys R Us, and the other toy sellers said it was a brutal holiday season because Toys R Us used to be a big part of their um, distribution network. Amazon is still gunning for uh, not just Walmart and Target, but the grocery chains. Kroger's trying to figure out its way. Um, what do you see happening in this? I, I go to places like Columbus or in central Virginia and suburbias, and it's entirely too overbuilt for a world where the default for us is just to buy it off of Amazon.
1: Well, you know, I think that a lot of people thought retail was even going to be worse. That it's actually, in in a way... You know, some people feel it's begun to bottom out a little bit. I mean, and again, something like Toys R Us going under was, you know, is is huge because there were so many companies, and that's who they sold to. But I think, um, I, I think that we're not, we don't really know yet how bad it will be for traditional retail. But mean, and meanwhile, look, you know, retail has become a funny thing. There, you know, I I'm on when I'm on Instagram looking at black clothing I want to buy. You know, half the companies are on, on Instagram I've never even heard of. And you have this feeling that they only exist on Instagram. So the landscape is 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 changing, you know, dramatically. And, you know, it may be that, you know, for for brick and mortar co- um, retailers, it it's gotten so bad that it won't get a whole lot worse. I don't think we really know yet.
0: Ellen Pollack of the New York Times. We are in that part of our episode with about nine minutes or so left where we go into free skate. Uh, I don't know if you remember, roller skating used to be a thing back in the day. You know, couple skating, turning off the lights, giving you some air supply. Now, this is freestyle for you. Do you wanna hit the donut waitress thing? Were you really a donut waitress? I was. Was that out of Brandeis? What what happened?
1: So I did, I graduated from Brandeis University and I um, came to New York, which was always my plan. And um, I was I was doing theater and looking for writing jobs, and the the best gig I got was working in a donut shop on the corner of Fifty First and Eighth Avenue, and that was a period before the Times Square area had gotten um, gentrified, and it was it was um, it was actually a great experience because I had some customers. At that point, there was a revival of The King and I at the theater, at the Uris Theater across the street. And one one day I went and I watched the show with one of my customers, who was one of the lighting booth guys. I watched the second half of, of The King and I, and I looked on the stage, and I knew what kind of donut every single person on the stage used to used to come in and buy. So I had... I had, you know, actors and actresses as my customers, and then I had um, a lot of guys who had DTS and were like. Incredible drunks, and we're living in the single room occupancy hotels, barely surviving and eating a cruller three times a day at my at my donut not my donut shop, but the donut shop. I, I lived on
0: Fifty Second and Eight, and it was called Hell's Kitchen back in the day. Clinton, I don't know, Midtown, the Theater District, and time was you could walk over to Hell's Kitchen and see those single occupancy kind of. Homes, you could see the check cashing stores. That's all been wiped away. It's Everybody's gone. pushed out to 11th Ave, 12th Ave. I mean, do you remember the seediness of Times Square? Do you remember, like, you know, the, the last of the David Dinkins era?
1: Everything in this town
0: has been so sterilized and sanitized.
1: It, it is, but it it has been. And, and, and I think, you know, Manhattan has sort of become this sort of um, – this sort of wonderland, and I think, or at least parts of Manhattan, not all of Manhattan, but um, certainly um, midtown. But I think, you know, for for a kid coming out of college to see, you know, people who were succeeding and on Broadway and sitting at the same counter with, with guys who were, you know, really really down on their luck and 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 you know couldn't even pick up their coffee cup because they were shaking so much it was it was an education um and and it was actually good to meet some of those guys i remember you visiting one in the hospital when he got ill i mean he was in his 80s and had been you know a drunk for most of his life but um
0: was- i've always wanted to ask this and i don't know if bizday or or uh, you know uh, Metro is going to do it. I, where do you think the median squeegee man from the Holland Tunnel from 1985 is today in 2019, if he's alive?
1: I have no idea. They were everywhere, and now you don't see those guys anymore. I don't, I don't know. Are they riding the subways? I have no idea. Well, it's like an industry that has died. And you know what? There were probably people who were, making, who were feeding themselves off of washing off windshields by the Holland Tunnel.
0: Um, In the few minutes we have left, I just want to throw an idea off you maybe for a future episode. We're starting to hear murmurs and rumblings about subscription fatigue. You guys at The Times have covered yourself in glory. You brought the consultants in. You figured out a way to get people to pay for good news digitally, where nobody really cares about the declines in print anymore. But everywhere I turn now, whether it's Vanity Fair, whether it's the Time, Inc. publications, this, 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 everyone wants to limit me to two articles and I have to have an extra login. And at some point, you hit up against your natural limit. You think I have a Netflix, I have a Spotify, New York Times wants it, Washington Post wants it. Isn't there someone who could bring it together, who could make it a little less frictionless, a little more frictionless? A little more
1: frictionless?
0: Less friction involved in this and than I have to go and remember a password and sign up for it and then be stuck with $200 a month of, of subscription charges.
1: Well, look, you have to remember, we journalists need to eat too. And, the, uh, and we need you to pay for our stuff. So I don't know how you make it less frictionless. But I think um, – I mean Bloomberg
0: has a paywall now. I can't access my old articles at Businessweek anymore. Like what do you guys – I don't want to get into trouble or anything saying that but everywhere you turn now Ellen suddenly subscription is the new
1: I just business model. want to say, I just want to say that I um in January went to a meeting of, of our foreign correspondents in Europe and in, in Asia and to pay for that kind of rep- reporting force. If you want to know what's going on in Myanmar, if you want to know what's going on in India, and if you want to know what's going, you know, going on in 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 Frankfurt you know, that costs money, you know, and, and how are we paying for subscriptions?
0: So, But it hits up at the same thing. We, we admire the likes of Spotify and Netflix. But then when Hulu comes at you, when Disney wants to break out its own, I'm a parent of young children, and they're going to want the Disney streaming thing when they break all that stuff out of Netflix. At some point, you're like, could there be a Spotify for this? Could somebody just unify like a, a an omnibus subscription model? We haven't seen that. Are we ever going to see that?
1: I don't think you're going to see it soon. It's a good idea. Figure out how to make it work, and you'll be as rich as Jeff Bezos.
0: Uh, the Times, New York Times now, Mazel Tov to you guys, tell Meredith and, and everyone there, the market cap is just under $6 billion. Uh, that has been an incredible turnaround. I remember we covered it during the financial crisis. It had to take a loan from Carlos Slim, the, the billionaire in Mexico, but really found its groove, its business model groove when Donald Trump was elected and people really wanted hard news and you had to separate the fake news from the hard news. And at the same time, the the, the Washington Post is resurgent under... Jeff Bezos, and even the Wall Street Journal, our old haunt, Mother Dow, is hiring again. Were you they shocked are. to see
1: that? Uh, you know, I don't – I'm a little less shocked than I would have been uh, a year ago. I think that um, th- what's been gratifying to, to, to those of us working at publications like that is that um, despite the fact that you know, reporters are being disparaged, and there's all this talk about fake news. That readers do want to, they do want access to very carefully reported news, and that they are 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 still willing to to pay for it. And uh, you know, a huge amount of work goes into into the the stories we do now, and I think that um, people are are again realizing the value of. Of of journalism, at least I, I hope they are. And if you look at some of our stories, you know we were talking about this before that that so many stories now kind of cross different subject matter. And you look at some of the stories we run in the New York Times and also at the Journal, and you'll see many many bylines on a, on a story. And it's because you know st- um, stories are, are are changing and the world is changing, and sometimes politics and technology comes together, and you need um, you you need like lots of different kinds of expertise
0: and you guys are doing i mean i just remember when i was an intern at the new york times during business school that it was really siloed even nobody wanted to sully their hands on online copy it was all about going to the a1 meeting right and ending up in print and at some point i think me i you know at the magazine with you and at business week i stopped caring whether it was in print or whether it was online the shelf life of a story is so fleeting now
1: you know it it you know the 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 ability to get online with a story quickly and to develop it over the course of the day, um, I think, is um, very you know a real advantage to readers. They get information fast, and as we have more information, we will give it to you, and you don't have to wait till the next day. And it's so different than it was, you know, when I started out at the Wall Street Journal so long ago.
0: And you're still hiring. I mean, you're building out the masthead at Biz Day. I understand that there are events. More things coming up? You're talking about a TV show?
1: I've done, I've added a lot of people um, to our staff in the business department since I've been there. We've hired a lot of economics reporters. We've hired a lot of of finance reporters. We've hired a lot of uh, tech reporters. It's kind of a good time to be in business journalism.
0: It is indeed, and let me leave you with an idea. Okay. Lehman Brothers, the musical, let's do it. (laughs) Ellen Pollack, business editor of the New York Times, Veteran investigative journalist, established author, uh, I cannot thank you enough. This is a blast, and I hope you'll do it again.
1: Thank you so much. This was fun. Full disclosure,
0: our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Neil Rauch at NPR New York. Enjoy this show on NPR.org and the NPR One app. iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Love us, don't just like us, I need your validation. We are all the news that's fit to compress into MP3. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.